talked to a lot of people over the years about singing in church. One thing I often hear is, you know, I don't really like to sing. I'm not really an emotional person. I'm, I, I'm more, I come to church for the sermon. And I, I really like to hear good preaching and good, good theology. And so the singing is not really for me. I, I kind of come late. You know, I, I know when, when the pastor's about to start preaching, I, I turn up for that part. I don't, you know, music doesn't speak to me. Talk to other people who care deeply about singing. And for them, church was worth going to if the singing gave them that feeling. You know the feeling I'm talking about. That high, that, that buzz. And if they don't find it, they say, you know, my church, just the, the, the music, the singing, it, it didn't connect with me. And it's the type of person who will even go to a different church. They would leave a church simply because the, the music didn't connect with them on that deep level. Now, these seem like opposite problems. The person who doesn't really care much about the singing, and the person who cares so much about it that they would leave a church to find better music. But I want to suggest that actually these two problems are two sides of the same coin. They flow from the same source. Both of these people, now admittedly these are extreme examples, but both of these people view singing mainly as an individual act. Something I do. It's something for me. This person says, I need the singing to give me that spiritual high. This person says, I don't really need the singing at all. But the Bible actually won't let us treat singing like that on either side. When we appreciate what makes congregational singing so special and unique, then we'll come to enjoy singing even more. We'll come to understand God's purposes for singing, no matter how we personally feel about singing, whether you're a singing person or not. So this talk's going to have four main sections. If you're into note-taking, it's going to be a sort of complicated one. Just fair warning. If you're not into note-taking, don't worry about it. This talks for, for people on both sides of the spectrum. Let's, uh, Blake already read Colossians 3, so let's go to Ephesians 5. The first of our four main sections is simply this. Singing is an act of love. Singing is an act of love. Ephesians 5, 19. Let's start in verse 18. What does a church that's full of the Holy Spirit look like? Paul will tell us, he says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, did you catch that? There are two audiences for our singing. Making melody to the Lord, I would say God is the, the primary audience of our singing, but Paul also says addressing one another. And just one chapter earlier in Ephesians 4, verse 15, Paul says that in the church, our main ministry is speaking the truth in love 
to one another. That's, that happens in a lot of different ways. It happens through one-on-one conversations. happens through preaching, Bible study, praying together. But as we see just one chapter later in chapter 5, it also happens when we address one another in a song. We are speaking the truth in love. Here's how the theologian David Peterson puts it. He says, the God-directed ministry of prayer or praise and the notion of edification, which means building up the church, are intimately linked in the New Testament. Even psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which are expressions of faith and thankfulness to God, are to be considered simultaneously as the means of teaching and admonishing one another. So this means that singing is part of each Christian's ministry to the whole body. If you're part of Chaffee Crossing, I hope that Blake told you when you joined this church that you've joined the choir. The whole church is the choir. It's okay for a church to have a subset of the church that is a different choir. That's okay. But the whole church is the main choir. When you join this church, you become a a steward of the spiritual health of the whole church. And that's a stewardship that you fulfill in part by opening your mouth in song. There is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't sing. And we need to hear one another sing. If you're a Christian who's enduring persecution from your earthly family because you're following Christ, you need to hear your spiritual family sing, Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. If you're a Christian who's fighting hard against the shame of your own sin. You need to come to church, even if you're that guy in the back corner, and hear the voices around you saying, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. Our weary hearts long to hear the gospel reverberate around us and surround sound. It's an entirely different experience, I would argue, than listening to good, edifying Christian music in your headphones or in your car. Those are great things to do. But remember what we were talking about earlier, how God has united us and gathered us as a family. Man, I can listen to Michael W. Smith or any number of Christian artists sing good things to me in my ears. But if you come to Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church, you can hear your spiritual family sing those truths to you. They might not be professional vocalists, but they're people who know you. They're people who have committed to care for you, and you have committed to care for them and to show love to them. And one of the ways that you're going to show your love to them is by singing. Jonathan Edwards thought a lot about heaven. And I think that's a good model for us. He he really kind of philosophically tried to imagine a lot about what heaven would, would be like. If, if you want to be edified, like tomorrow afternoon, if you don't have anything going on, look, you probably find it online, his sermon, Heaven, a World of Love. <laughs> it is awesome. And one of the things he says in there, uh, I'm not sure if it's in that sermon, actually. I'm sorry, I may be getting my Edwards quotes mixed up. But somewhere Edwards said that heaven is a place where God's people express the inward concord and harmony and spiritual beauty of their souls by sweetly singing to one another. He's probably reflecting on Ephesians 5. If, If heaven is a place where our love and fellowship is heightened, is perfected 
in every way, then how do we communicate in heaven? I don't think he was saying we only sing, but he was imagining that our conversations would be almost like a musical. We would be singing to one another of, of Christ's praise. So you might say that when we sing in church each Sunday, we enjoy a foretaste, or I guess the, the proper term would be a foresound of heaven, of the new creation. So singing is an act of love, and it helps prepare our hearts for the world of love that we will inhabit in the new creation. So that's the first section, Ephesians 5, singing as an act of love. Section 2, what songs should we sing? When the church gathers, what songs should we sing? Ah, good question. Now, this is the second main point of the talk, and this second point has four parts to the answer. Okay, so point two, sub point A, or however you want to notate it, we should sing songs full of biblical truth. Blake just read to us Colossians 3.16, and I'm going to read it again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This means we should regularly sing the psalms set to music in some way, whether they're set to verse, whether it's a song that's been written recently that's inspired by the psalms. We should be singing the themes and the ideas and the poetry of the biblical psalms. I'm not sure that there's a very firm line between hymns and spiritual songs. The Greek term humnos, hymn, just meant a religious song. And a spiritual song is something that accords with the truth that the Holy Spirit has inspired in his word. That's what a spiritual song means. It's a, it's a song that helps us reflect on spirit-inspired truth. So what Paul is saying is you should sing all sorts of songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not like he's saying uh, you should eat you know, apples and burgers and ice cream. He's saying you should eat Red apples and gold apples and green apples, all sorts of great God-honoring songs that re help us reflect on the word of Christ, the message of the gospel. This means singing is part of the ministry of the word. Ministry of the word is not just limited to preaching or, or reading scripture. It's part of how we teach one another. When we sing, we instruct one another that God is holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. We help one another understand that he is immortal, invisible, God only wise. So as we sing, the church becomes a seminary. You are enrolled in God's seminary during corporate singing, and everyone is simultaneously the professors and the students with these glorious doctrines reverberating off of our lips and into our ears. Because of this, I think it's wise for a church's elders to exercise oversight over the master list of songs that a church uses. Because songs teach. They convey information. And when we see in 1 Timothy 3, it's the elders of the church who have been recognized and affirmed as those who are able to teach. They don't just do that by standing up and explaining God's word to us. They, they do that. But they should also have oversight of the songs. Now, they can collaborate with the musicians you know, this, it doesn't need to be a heavy-handed thing, but I think the elders need to look over those songs and say, what's going to nourish this church? 
What's going to help equip this congregation? What's going to help our seminary of, co- or of congregational singing be accredited with the best truth that we can sing? Then when it comes to choosing songs for each Sunday, I encourage church leaders to pick songs that complement the theme of the whole service, that complement the sermon text that's going to be preached. Ideally, the songs and the scripture readings and the prayers that happen elsewhere in the service preach the points of the sermon in advance. They imprint the sermon text onto our hearts kind of like a photo negative so that the whole service is telling one united story. A question that's often asked is, what about if a song is true and biblical and everything in it is good, but it was written by somebody who holds to questionable or false theology? In that situation, I think elders should weigh whether including a song by that author or that particular group could be distracting or dangerous for their flock. If the hymn writer is deceased or not well known, then maybe using the song is less risky. There's no exact rule to follow in such situations. It's an area that requires careful wisdom. That's why you want to have wise and godly elders to think through and pray about it together. The great news is there's lots of really wonderful songs who are written by people who hold to good biblical theology. So there's no shortage of good, true songs to sing. So that's the first thing. We should sing songs of of biblical truth. Second, we should also sing hymns and songs of heart-stirring beauty. Singing deep truth isn't at odds with expressing sincere emotion and affection to God. So lyrically, we should value songs that express rich truths in moving poetry. Do you know how much of your Bible consists of poetry? God loves poetry and you should too. This doesn't mean that you only should sing long songs or dense songs. Uh, We should sing all sorts of songs that give expression to believers' greatest hopes and joys and longings in language that is rich, that is profound. It gets deeper the more you think about it. The sorts of songs that stand up to the the moments of life that require something insightful and beautiful. The the moments when when a child is is born with a health challenge, when you're at a loved one's deathbed. You're, You're looking for a song that says something. You're not just looking for a radio hit. Musically, we should look for songs where the tune fits the meaning of the lyrics, or or better, enhances the meaning of the lyrics. Ideal songs for a a congregation have melodies that are beautiful and expressive and stir our emotions while being still easy to learn for people from different generations, different cultures, different tastes. Uh, Not all music is created equal. However, we are all situated in a particular cultural context and church context, as Matt helpfully pointed out for us earlier. So you want to think carefully about which sorts of melodies are best suited to help your whole congregation sing wholeheartedly. So songs of biblical truth, songs of heart-stirring beauty. Third, we should sing both old and new songs. Some songs have stood the test of time for good reason. And I think we should embrace these classic old hymns. In a a moment, we're going to sing, well, in in several moments, I should say, we're going to sing, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. 
This hymn has been around since the 1600s, and it's still worth singing. I think it's humble to sing old songs. If we were to throw out the masterpieces of Martin Luther and Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley, where's the guy with, with a T-shirt on which has all these hymn writers' names on it? Stand up. What's your name again, brother? Ryan, uh, can you unzip your sweater? Here we go. This is your illustration. This guy believes we should still be singing Watts and Wesley and Newton and Cooper. Why? Because they wrote things that are profound. These were Christians who experienced the Lord's grace and testified to it in song. Um, If we only sing stuff that was written in the last 20 years, recording in in some Nashville-recorded studio near my house, uh, C.S. Lewis had a term for that. He called that chronological snobbery thinking that your age is the age that always comes up with the best stuff. He said, no, it's not. Go, go find some medieval theologians. Go find some Reformation theologians and, and learn from their wisdom. But we should also sing new songs. The Psalms are full of calling us to sing to the Lord a new song. The wonders and riches of God's grace are so fresh. We should want to write them new ways, try to plumb the depths of the English language to find a new way of expressing how glorious it is. Uh, So I think old songs help keep us rooted to the past. They show our unity with the church throughout all ages, but new songs can sometimes be more accessible, and that's okay too. They give us language that may be easier for young people or new believers to understand, and I think that's helpful. Fourth, we should sing hymns that express the whole range of the Christian life. Of course, our singing will often resound with joy in the risen and reigning Savior. But Christ has not yet returned. And so every Sunday, your church is full with people who may be experiencing childlessness or cancer or cruelty or calamity. And when we look through the Bible's own hymn book, the book of Psalms, we see a large percentage of them are lament. Psalms of Lament that teach us that faith means not running away from God in our suffering, but running to him, bringing him our distress, bringing him our questions. How long, O Lord? Carl Truman has a great, very brief article you can find called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? He makes the point that in the Psalms of Lament, we see misery and pain. And so it's appropriate that some of our songs may be slow. They may be in the minor key because we are not yet home in in heaven. So in all of this, hymns of biblical truth, heart-stirring beauty, old and new, whole range of, of Christian life and emotion, the fact that we are selecting songs for the whole congregation should shape our approach. If you've ever been to a great museum, you know that as you walk through each painting has been carefully chosen. Most of the great museums have archives and they have basements and they've got tons of paintings that are, are, are good and are valuable and they're sitting in a basement under a drop cloth. Why? Because the curator understands that he or she only has so much space on the walls. And if you want your museum to be prestigious and visited by everybody, you're going to show them only the best. You're going to pick the best. Martin Luther Uh, there was a a flowering of hymn writing in the Reformation. Why? Because they were excited that they had rediscovered the biblical truth that we're justified not by what we do, 
Not by faith and works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. And so people started writing songs about it. And they, they got into psalm singing. I mean, they thought psalm singing was cool. And so they started singing the psalms in German in their own language. And Luther, as they were assembling the hymnal in Wittenberg, excluded a lot of these new songs that were being written. He wanted only the best. He was into quality over quantity. I think we, we, we would do well to follow his example. So that was big section number two, what songs should we sing? Big section number three, how should we accompany our singing? Here it gets a little more complicated. This question has divided some churches. And I think it can be very helpful to frame our answer to this question with an emphasis on the corporate congregational aspect of our songs. I think then we can de-escalate many so-called worship wars. I think when we figure out what instruments to use and what style of music to play, we should look for ways to support the idea that singing is a mutual ministry of love, as we've been talking about. We want to promote the unity of the body in how we structure the music. So two thoughts on this area of, uh, of accompaniment. Number one, prioritize the sound of the human voice. I think it's illuminating the New Testament doesn't command us to use any particular instruments. I think we're free to play instruments today. The, the Old Testament priests played them at the temple. The New Testament instructs us simply to sing. As Blake said earlier, that's the clear command. We're called to sing. How we accompany it and what instruments we use is left up to wisdom and prudence. So how do we think of the musician's role? If we expect those who play an instrument up front mainly to inspire us and to amaze us, we'll structure the music with that goal in mind. On the other hand, if we treat the musical and vocal accompaniment as a way to facilitate and enhance the singing of the whole church, that's a different sort of thing. That still requires excellence. So this is not a question of uh, either playing with excellence or playing sloppy. God's not honored by sloppy playing. He told the Old Testament musicians to play skillfully. And so... There's a difference, though, between being a skillful performer and being a skillful accompanist. At my music college, you would often go to uh, recitals. My, my uh, roommate was a vocal student. He was a singer. And when he did his recital, he stood up and performed. And he's an amazing singer. But you know, there was someone from the university who was on the grand piano behind him. I don't re even remember her name, and I think that's instructive. She was the accompanist. And so when everybody applauded, were they mainly applauding for her? They were certainly grateful for her. And they noticed, wow, she's very skillful. But they were applauding for my friend, my roommate. He was the performer, the great singer. She faded to the background. She provided the foundation that let him shine. She used her skill and her excellence humbly, serving him so that the spotlight would be on him. She had a very important role. It couldn't have happened without her. Do you see where I'm going with this? The musicians in church are doing that. We are accompanying so that the whole congregation can be in the spotlight. We want to make it possible for the whole church to engage in this ministry of singing that God's giving them. So here's a trend I've noticed that churches that use fewer instruments and that keep the volume of those instruments 
on the lower side and keep the complexity of what those instruments are playing on the simpler side tend to have stronger singing. It's not an absolute rule. There's churches that have really intricate, really complex music that also have strong singing. But I think in general, when the music is simple, still excellent, the congregation sort of realizes, oh, you know what? The, the singing is the main thing here. It, it, it's, it's sort of subconscious. If you go to church and someone's doing an amazing guitar solo, Man, and I love a good guitar solo as much as the next guy, all right? You, you put that on, I'll turn that thing up to 11 in my car. I, I'm listening loud to, to great guitar music. But it's a little tricky to focus on that and then also, like, do your thing. And, and, and sit, you know, it, it, when there's not that guitar solo, it's sort of like, well, there's nothing really going on. I guess I'll sing. Ah, you know. I, <laughs> there, it, it's sort of human nature. I make that point gently. Uh, I, I think there's lots of different ways to do this. I think this is uh, an area of freedom and flexibility. But I think the big divide in church music is not between traditional and contemporary. I think the big divide is between non-congregational and congregational. So I think this holds true whether you, your church has an orchestra or classical music or a choir or a drum kit. And it, it just, it, that stuff is it important? Yes. Is it of most importance? No. The most important thing is, are you trying to help the whole congregation sing? So that's the first thing. Prioritize the sound of the human voice, no matter what instruments you use. Second, prioritize unity when considering musical style. The genre of our music does matter. As the old adage goes, the medium shapes the message. It does shape things. It's not unimportant, but at the end of the day, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what genre to use. It was written 2,000 years ago. I think music sounded quite different then than it does now. But it does tell us in Philippians 2, count others more significant than yourselves. It's interesting, just before Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly through singing in Colossians 3.16. In fact, open up your Bibles. I want you to see this because this will be helpful to chew on later if you want to keep thinking about this. Look at Colossians 3.16, which is one of the most famous verses in the Bible on singing. And then look up. Because right in this same section, he's telling them in verse 12 to put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And meekness and patience. And he's calling them to bear with one another, verse 13. And put on love, verse 14, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There's a musical illustration or analogy. This is the priority for the church. Not having my needs or preferences met. If I went to a church that played my favorite style of music, I think a lot of you might not be comfortable there. I like some pretty weird music. I'll admit it. So I shouldn't go to church to have my musical tastes met. I should go to church to put on love and to, to put on harmony and to, to be in one body. Now look a little bit further up. Look at verse 11. Paul's talking to a very diverse church. 
But he tells them here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He's not saying that we lose our earthly culture or ethnicity or background when we come to Christ, but he is saying that Christ is primary. And some of these differences were culture. The barbarians were Greeks, but they were considered the hillbillies of the Greeks. Barbar literally refers to their accent and the way that they talked. They talked funny, which probably means that they sang funny. But Paul is saying, sing together as one. I think we can express this concept by participating enthusiastically in the singing, even if the song is not your favorite style of music. Because when you do that, you're singing not primarily for yourself, but for others. A while back, uh, on, at our church in D.C., where Blake and I served together, the pastor realized that we hadn't sung the song Leaning on the Everlasting Arms in a while. He said, Matt, I think this song is going to be really encouraging to our church. There's lots of people who grew up singing it. It's got a good, simple biblical message. And uh, it's a song that transfers. It's commonly sung in lots of different cultures, whether you grew up in the white church or the black church. So it's a useful song in that regard. And True confessions, although I affirm the words of the song are true and edifying, I personally find the tune of that song to be cheesy. I don't like it. I find it to be hokey. And so my pastor, I said, you know, isn't it just kind of a, what, what fellowship? It's, I just said, I, to me, it feels too silly. He said, Matt, I'm asking you to still lead it. I'm asking you to set your preferences aside. And you know what? The Lord rebuked me. I learned a lesson that day because as we sang it, I saw on people's faces that they were being ministered to. And I realized, man, I was so selfish. This song's not for me. I can affirm the words and the words are good for me. But someone else is being blessed. And then I got it. I realized, oh, for all the times we're singing my favorite song, other people are giving up their preferences for me. Now I know how they feel. When we sing my favorite stuff, there's definitely someone here who's thinking, oh, I can't stand these songs by Keith and Kristen Getty or City of Light. I wish we sang the old stuff. Oh, and how Christ-like they're being for me. So pray that God would give you joy in, in singing songs that aren't your favorite. I would encourage you to pray that your church would include people with diverse musical tastes. I think it's a wonderful witness to have a church that's made up of fans of hip-hop and rock, and classical, and folk. Now, we have to recognize there's no such thing as a neutral musical style. Every church will have a style of some sort, a musical home base. You can't avoid it. I think we should try to arrange our songs in a way that everyone can sing along. But we should recognize some people make more sacrifices with the music than others, and I think we should honor them for that. And thank them and recognize, you know, this music might not be what's most comfortable for them, but they come every week and they participate and that's part of their ministry. We should honor them for that, even if they feel like the, the singing is cheesy or weird, uh, but they still come and they still sing. Uh, so that's, those are my thoughts on accompaniment and style. We can go deeper in that in the Q&A if you want, but for now, let's move on to our fourth and final section. Let's make this personal for each of us. How can each of us grow in the ministry of congregational singing? 
This is a ministry the Lord has given you and he's given me. So how can we grow in it? How can we be faithful stewards? I've got seven quick suggestions. First, thank God for whatever singing gifts he's given you. And, and be content. The Bible doesn't call us to all be soloists or virtuosos. It calls us to sing. It also says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. So if that's all you can manage, that is fine too. 1 Corinthians 12, God arranged the members of the body, each of them as he chose. He's given you the amount of singing talent that he wants you to have. Sometimes his ways are mysterious. But he expects you to open your mouth and use whatever voice he's given you. The whole point of congregational singing is that you can't really hear each person's voice distinctly anyway. It's, it's a whole throng. I know that's harder to do in a church of nine. It's a little bit easier in a church of 90. It's a, it's a little bit easier in a church of 900. But the idea is that it's a, it's a sound of one congregation, men and women, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, weak and strong, all raising a united voice together. Second, come prepared to church. If your church sends out the songs beforehand and a playlist of some sort, well, listen to them. Or, or if they post the, the hymns that will be sung in a, a bulletin or something like that. Some really practical things. There's no chapter and verse for this. This is just kind of wisdom and suggestions. Try getting a good night's sleep before church. Try getting a good breakfast. If you, were, if you were my roommate and you were about to sing in a recital, you would be drinking lots of water. You would be preparing your body. I'm not saying we have to go all out, but come to church ready to sing. We want to church, see church not so much as attending a concert where you sit back and you're entertained. You're part of the choir. You're part of the orchestra. So come prepared. Third, pray. Pray before church. Pray that the Lord would give you joy in the singing, but pray for the congregational singing of your church. It's part of the health of the church. So just like you might pray for the, for the preaching and the, for the preacher, just as you might pray for the Sunday school teachers who are teaching the children, do you pray for them? Do you pray that the Lord would, would build up the Sunday school teachers and give them strength and boldness as they share the gospel with the children of the church? Do it. Pray for the ushers, that they would be cheerful in greeting people and pray for the whole congregation in your singing. And if you can figure out a way to do so, try to pray for one another even while you're singing the songs. Does the Lord bring someone to mind that this song could minister to? Maybe pray for them or, or, or make plans to pray for them later or, or to speak to them. Fourth, learn your church's songs well. Get to know the words. Get to know the melodies. If you come to my house, you'll see church bulletins kind of taped up in front of our sink where we, you know, wash our dishes. Because, you know, as I'm scrubbing the pan, I might look up and I see a, a great line from a hymn. It helps me meditate on it. Uh, it wasn't my idea. It was my wife's idea. She has to get all the credit, you know. But the idea is the better you learn your church's songs, then when you come, you're able to sing out. And the songs will be more meaningful to you, but you'll also sing them better, and then that will help the songs be, be a ministry to others. That gets me to my fifth thing, sing with enthusiasm. I always like to talk about a friend of mine, Jeremy, and the way that he held himself during singing. I know that he was singing to the Lord, but this brother had a, just a unique gift 
of the way he was singing. I would, if I were particularly discouraged, we talked earlier, Blake, about coming to church when you don't feel like coming to church. So if I was having one of those sorts of Sundays, I would look for Jeremy. Uh, he was a tall guy. He often stood in the back, and he, he was a swayer. You know, you don't have to be a swayer, but he would just sway. And he would, he would sometimes just sort of look around during the singing. He wouldn't stare. It wasn't awkward. But you could see he wasn't just praising the Lord. It was like he was inviting everyone from his post in the back row. How glorious is our God? Isn't God faithful? Isn't, isn't he wonderful? Now, we're not all called to that particular expression. We all have different personalities and styles and upbringing and culture. But I would challenge you to read through the Psalms and you will find emotion. You will find joy. You will find energy, exuberance, expressiveness. So whatever that looks like for you, for the personality and the emotional wallet that God has given you, spend that emotional wallet in singing. Sing with enthusiasm. One of the best ways to do that is simply to sing loudly. There are few things more spiritually invigorating than being surrounded by believers who are singing at a high volume. It's an easy way to bless other Christians. Sing loud. I don't mean yell. There's a difference. If you're not really familiar with music, then just listen to those around you and try to blend your voice into what they're doing. So I'm, I'm giving you permission to sing loud. Try to keep it musical. Try to blend it in. Don't just do your own thing. Try to contribute to the whole overall sound. But I had some neighbors who were believers. They attended a, another gospel preaching church in the neighborhood. And they said, we always like, on our way to church, we walk by your church. Oh, why? Because we can hear you singing through the bricks. I just thought, that was, praise God for that. So strive to be the, tri- the type of church that if someone walks by, they're like, ooh, that is just beautiful. How, what is that? Number six, consider your body language. Singing isn't just something we do with our voice. It engages us, uh, body and soul, heart and mind. Now, again, your body language will vary according to your personality and your culture. But we can convey a lot. And I think uh, the pandemic has taught us this too. You can convey a lot of emotion through your eyes. If you're wearing a mask, you, you should still be able to tell if someone's smiling. And smiling with your eyes while you sing actually will make your singing sound more joyful. It makes it sound more expressive. Um, two years ago, I got to visit an underground, unregistered church in East Asia, pastored by a friend. I got to do some teaching there. It was an honor to get to, to be part of their service. And um, met in a warehouse, probably about 75, 90 people there. And as the service began... They, they, opened, they had hymnals, they, they opened up the hymnals and they started to sing. But they all stayed seated and they sang somewhat softly. And I asked the pastor, I noticed, you know, they never stood up. Why didn't you stand? Why was everyone, they, they sang with a lot of emotion though. That's the thing, you could tell they really meant it and they enjoyed it. And he said, if we stand up, our voices will carry more. And then we'll probably be reported to the police. And they'll find out that we're having a big gathering here that's not registered with the government. We'll have to pay these fines and we'll have to move our meeting place. I could even be thrown in prison. 
for preaching without a license and these sorts of things. So these believers are looking forward to a heavenly worship service where they can sing with enthusiasm and use their body language. And so I would say, let's not take our freedoms for granted. What, what, what a wonderful lesson we can learn from these brothers and sisters who are singing while staying seated. Now, I also want to say, as I talk about some of these suggestions about singing with enthusiasm and using our, our bodies and our, and our eye contact and our joy, these are not strict rules to follow. I am not trying to add legalism into our singing. These are suggestions for how we can convey this idea of the fact that singing is a way we both worship God and love one another. There's going to be harder times and harder seasons of life where it's difficult to sing at all. And so that leads to the seventh and final thing. Persevere when it's hard to sing. This world has fallen. There will be times when singing is the hardest thing to do. There will be times when we have to simply let the singing of those around us carry us to the throne of grace where God is rich in mercy and rich in help and grace for us. Let the singing of others minister to you in those dark times. Pray that God would help you to, to, to sing even if all you can get out is a whisper. But there will be seasons when it's difficult to sing. And again, just as I uh, finished the, the, the previous talk, it's, I think, those seasons that, that make it really sweet for us to look forward to singing in heaven. Uh, we are created to be a singing people. When you look at the book of Revelation, there's lots of songs in it. I think that teaches us that the new creation will be a place of, of singing, as, as Jonathan Edwards imagined. After all, God has made us in his image, and Zephaniah 3 says that God rejoices over us with singing. That's the delight that he takes in us. He, he sings over us. And so when we sing, we are reflecting his own beauty and his own glory back to him. And so as we sing, we are looking forward to that day when all of God's people, as one congregation, from every tribe and tongue and language, We'll get to sing his praises forever. And our brothers and sisters from East Asia will stand up. And they will get to sing as loud as they want. And we will get to join our voices to theirs as one great choir. And so let me encourage you that when you sing now, you are preparing your heart and you're helping prepare the hearts of everyone around you for that final day. Let me pray. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of song, and we thank you for making us a singing people. We pray that you'd help us to steward uh, this gift and this responsibility well, and help us to take joy in singing together as a congregation. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.